Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. I cover all things food, from cooking to gardening to fabulous ingredients to junk food, health, sustainability, even policy. You might say I'm obsessed with everything about food. Food is the one substance that connects everything to everything else, and it connects us all. Not only can we not live without it, not only does it determine much of what goes on in the world, but we love it. Hi, it's Mark Bittman, and welcome to Food. I have two great guests today, and I'll get to that in a second. First, I just wanted to welcome you remind you that you can always reach out to us at 833-FOOD-POD. That's 833-366-3763. And at our email address, bitmanpod at gmail.com. Of course, you can look for me on Twitter, Instagram, at Bitman or at Mark Bitman. Here's our first recipe of the podcast. Both of our recipes today are from Yotam Odalengi's latest book, just out last month, called Odalengi Test Kitchen. We'll be talking about that. It's a beautiful book, as all of his books are. And to choose recipes from this, since many of them are quite straightforward and simple, to choose recipes from this was not easy. But this one I particularly love. It is yellow split pea 
puree with buttered onions and caper sauce. Put three tablespoons of butter and two tablespoons of olive oil along with two red onions finely chopped in a large saute pan and along with a large pinch of salt and cook that over medium heat for 15 to 18 minutes, stirring often until the onions are very soft and deeply golden. Transfer half of them, half of the onions, along with most of the oil and melted butter to a small bowl and set that aside. Add to the same pan one cup of yellow split peas that you've already rinsed and drained and a half a teaspoon of ground turmeric along with five cups of water and another big pinch of salt. So you add that to the pan where the remaining onions are sitting and you bring it to a simmer over medium-high heat. Lower the heat to medium and cook that for about 20 minutes uncovered. Then cover and reduce the heat a little bit more and cook for another 40 to 45 minutes until the split peas are very, very soft and most of the liquid has evaporated. Check that now and then to make sure that it's not burning. You'll be making a caper sauce in the meantime, and that sauce is two tablespoons of capers, roughly chopped, a quarter cup of parsley, finely chopped, two thin lemon slices with the seeds removed, and then the slices, including the flesh and the rind, finely chopped, and two tablespoons of olive oil. Combine all of that in a small bowl. While the split peas are still warm when they're done, put them together with any remaining cooking water and another tablespoon or so of olive oil into a food processor and blitz that until it's completely smooth. So then spoon that puree into a shallow dish, make a little dip in the middle, and mix the buttered onions with the caper sauce and spoon that onto the dip. Serve that warm or at room temperature as a dip, or you could serve it as a side dish. Beautiful, beautiful recipe. I made it last night. So as I said, we have two guests today, so brace yourselves. It's a really great pairing of Mayuk Sen and Yotam Odolengi. The interviews are separate. It's not a group interview, so be sure to stay tuned in after Mayuk's segment. Mayuk is someone I feel a huge amount of affection for. He's young, not that that matters, eloquent, and wildly talented, one of the great new generation of food writers. He's perhaps best known for his loving profiles of women. He wrote about Grace Sia Chu and Sophia Loren for our publications, and he recently published Tastemakers, Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America. We'll talk about that mostly. If you haven't read anything Mayuk's written, you should look for some because you're really in for a treat, but he is also a terrific conversationalist. But beware, he doesn't like cooking. Yotam Odalengi, you already know, we'll talk about him a little bit later. Right now, here's my interview with Mayuk Sen. So your new book is called Tastemakers, and the intro, I should say that it's a book about seven immigrant women, plus Julia Child, plus a number of other things. For what it's worth, uh, I knew Julia, I knew Madeline Common in passing, I knew Marcella f a little bit, more than nothing, and I know Julie Sani 
fairly well and I've admired her for I would have been I would have been really mad if this book didn't have Julie San in it so I've admired her for God it's close to 40 years so I love that part in the intro to Tastemakers you talk about Lizzie Black Candor and her we'll say well-intentioned but misaligned or misguided work around assimilating immigrants to cook more American her book was called The Settlement Cookbook which was a huge success when it came out in 1901 and I will say was still influential when I started cooking around 1970. That was one of the books that you wanted to have was Settlement. Pie crust recipe is really awesome, by the way. You write that Candor wanted women immigrants to mute any differences that revealed they were born outside of America. That's clearly a topic that we could spend days discussing and have spent much time discussing. But can you give us a little primer on Candor's work and what that all meant and means now? Yeah, totally. So Elizabeth Blackhander, she worked at, I believe it was called the Settlement House. And she basically, you know, her parents were uh, Jewish immigrants from Germany. And they'd come to the U.S. all the way back in the 1840s. And, you know, they had done a really good job of assimilating into America. And, you know, they spoke English very well, you know, they had good jobs, you know, they dressed properly, the American way, etc. And so that was kind of how Elizabeth Blackhander grew up, you know, in America, she, you know, saw her parents as people who had really succeeded by assimilating into the American way. So, you know, fast forward to, I believe it was the late 1800s, you know, when there are these new waves of immigrants from uh, places like Eastern Europe and Russia, most of whom are Jewish immigrants, you know, coming to America. She looks at them, especially uh, women and young girls, and is like, okay, you know, they need to survive in the same way that my parents were able to survive. And so what is one way to do that? It's to learn how to cook certain uh, American recipes and be the perfect American housewife. You know, that is the best way, you know, to survive in this new adoptive home. And so the reason why I decided to begin this book with her story, it was, you know, it actually, this didn't come to me for a few drafts. I believe it was like in the third draft where I was like, oh, you know what? Maybe this makes sense. Because I knew that, you know, the Settlement Cookbook was an incredibly influential cookbook for so many people. Like you mentioned, you know, James Beard, for example, loved the book as well. It's kind of this talisman that travels through generations, you know, and so I did not want to negate the importance and symbolic kind of significance it held for so many people. Yet the fact that this book was the one that really broke through and was able to have such stamina through the generations, I think says a lot about, you know, food and its ties historically to this idea of assimilation in America. And a few decades after uh, Kanda herself died, I believe she died in the 1940s, I want to say, you know, a few decades after that, that's when you start to see so many changes within America itself. You know, there's the loosening of immigration law like, with like a, the 1965, I believe it was called the Heart Seller Act, which, you know, brings in all these new waves of immigrants. And around that same time, a lot of these uh, new immigrants were culinary talents. You know, they stop kind of hiding behind, you know, their identities and they stop trying to, I guess, modify their creative impulses or culinary impulses to uh, suit American taste. And so that is when you kind of see that revolution. So I thought that beginning with Kendra's story was kind of necessary scene setting to, uh, you know, tell the reader basically, you know, like, how did we get here? Where did we begin in terms of 
food and immigration, women in particular, and how food was kind of seen uh, very early on in American history as this ticket for, you know, immigrant women to assimilate to America. And, you know, how does that bring us to today? That kind of thing. With these women and with others that you've talked to, what is assimilation look like? Were there people who didn't feel like it was a compromise and were glad to be assimilated? Were all the people you were you've looked at more assertive than you would have expected about preserving their own identities? Can we say anything generally about assimilation here? Yeah, I think that assimilation, when it comes to the women I wrote about in particular, you know, it usually manifested in terms of, you know, using certain ingredients, for example, or, you know, having shortcuts for certain, you know, cuisines that allowed American home cooks to kind of feel reassured and not intimidated. The example that comes to mind in particular is Elena Zelieta, who is the subject of my second chapter. So readers who are unfamiliar, or listeners, excuse me, who are unfamiliar with her, uh, you know, she was born in Mexico and spent most of her career in the Bay Area. And she went blind as an adult. And then she taught herself how to cook again after losing her sight. And, you know, she wrote many, many cookbooks. She had a short-lived, you know, television, cooking show, all this stuff. She was a marvelous woman. But, you know, towards the end of her career, uh, she really began kind of, you know, veering away from just Mexican food and Mexican food writing, and instead, you know, writing about things like California cuisine and uh, adopting this kind of approach that just embraced the very idea of California cuisine and American cuisine. And a lot of her kind of talking points, at least in public, were, you know, explicitly patriotic. You know, she was like, I love being American. And she was totally chill with having her food kind of reflect the nature of, you know, living in this country and having assimilated uh, as an immigrant, you know. And so a lot of her books had certain shortcuts, you know, this uh, particular cuisine, uh, Mexican cuisine, a little more palatable, let's say, to white affluent American readers. And I think my intention as a writer was to not cast judgment on these women, you know, like Alana Salieta, because it's so easy from today's remove, you know, many decades later, you know, being this young kid over here writing, you know, to be like, oh, yeah, she's like, you know, she's a sellout, you know, all that, you know, and it's so unfair considering, uh, you know, just everything that she survived and went through and, you know, the great pains that she took to make a life for herself in this country, you know? And so I think that that was one of the challenges of writing this book is to make sure that I did not come across as too judgmental, you know, because my politics, it's not obvious. And just reading the introduction to my book, you know, they're very far left. That was the way it was raised and everything like that. Yet, you know, when it comes to these women, I want to kind of treat their memories with as much respect as possible. So yeah, that was kind of what assimilation looked like early on. And just to clarify, you know, Elena was kind of working from the mid 1940s into the late 1960s. So, you know, just around that time when, uh, like we said earlier, you and I, you know, there's so much change happening within America itself and in the culinary world. This is a quote from you. I found myself interrogating the very notion of what success looks like for immigrants under American capitalism, using food as my lens of narrative inquiry. It was inevitable and is inevitable in the kind of books that, at least that you and I are writing now, that we're going to get to big questions here. What were the kinds of conclusions you came to looking at food as a lens of America in general? Oof, yeah, that's a, that's an easy question. No, just kidding. <laughs> well, we'll narrow it. You did say 
the notion of what success looks like for immigrants? Well, I guess I think the best way or the easiest way for me to answer this right now, at least, is to kind of talk about what was kind of, you know, kicking around in my head when I first had the idea for this book, because I think that a lot of that is distilled in that very statement that you just read aloud. So I first had the idea for this book in 2017, when obviously the election just happened months before all this stuff. And uh, basically within the food world, at least from my corner of the food world, I saw a lot of, I guess, well-intentioned is the most uh, polite way to put it, you know, uh, well-intentioned pleas to, you know, uh, kind of remind everyone that food brings us together. And this kind of, you know, morphed into a lot of talking points about immigrants in particular that were like, you know, immigrants, you know, feed America, immigrants get the job done, all that kind of stuff that I personally found so troubling because they basically, you know, abstracted the lives and the souls of immigrants. You know, it was such a patronizing way of, you know, kind of casting a gaze upon these people who were able to serve this white affluent consumer. And so I really wanted to kind of write against that as much as possible. And so the most logical way for me to do that, you know, given my experience as a food writer at the time back in 2017 was to, you know, tell the stories of immigrants as individuals in the most granular way possible, because that is a way to kind of, you know, work against any sort of abstraction that comes from people being like, immigrants feed America and all that stuff, you know? And so I tried to kind of just preserve that initial inclination, you know, as I wrote. And so in terms of, you know, what success looks like for immigrants under American capitalism, I think that I know assimilation is a word that I've already said like 50 times <laughs> throughout this episode so far. But, you know, I really, I do want people to understand the success for immigrants in this country. It doesn't necessarily equate to assimilation or kind of, you know, getting the approval of a white establishment. And uh, some of these women, as we just talked about, you know, they resisted that very strongly through their food. You know, they, they didn't care about whether people considered their food American or not. And, you know, in terms of why I was so attracted to this very idea, it's because, you know, I kind of looked at my own career as you know, someone who's been a food writer professionally for five years now, which is five years longer than I ever anticipated being in this profession, you know, I looked at it and especially, you know, as I was writing this first and second draft in 2019, 2020, I kind of asked myself like, okay, what do I actually want to do? And is whatever approval I'm getting from the establishment really matching up to that? Because I was very fortunate to get some recognition from, you know, certain institutions early on in my career, someone who's pretty young and it was great. And it, you know, opened up so much access to capital for me, which is wonderful and opportunities like the opportunity to write this book. But through that, I was kind of like, damn, I'm miserable. You know, like I've got all this hardware and it's nice, but I'm really sad. And I don't really know like what I'm doing or why I'm doing it, all that kind of stuff. So all these questions are kind of simmering in my mind. And, you know, I'm the child of immigrants. I'm not an immigrant myself. I was born and raised in Jersey, you know, but these are questions that I had about my own career. Just kind of like, how do I even measure success? You know, is it you know, the number of medals I have hanging on my wall or something like that? Or is it something a little more intangible, you know? And so I tried to apply that framework to the stories of these women as well. You do want to make a statement, a radical statement about how immigrant women have revolutionized food in America. And you did that in part by setting their stories next to arguably the most successful woman cook in the history of this country who wasn't 
an immigrant than that is Julia Child. Tell me a little bit about that decision and what you're thinking about that. Yeah, totally. So that was something that my wonderful editor at Norton, Melanie Tortorelli, uh, kind of persuaded me to do because, you know, my first draft was this kind of, I mean, it's a total mess in many respects as most first drafts are, right? But, you know, it was just like these 10,000 word monstrous uh, little profiles are not little big of these seven women. And my editor, Melanie, she was basically like, huh, you know, I think that you want to make kind of a bigger statement about, you know, what all these stories kind of in concert amount to and what kind of statement they make, you know? And maybe the way to do that is to just, you know, set them against the story of someone like Julia Child, who most readers and most American readers, even those who have, you know, very little knowledge of food, you know, they know about her, they know who she is, all that kind of stuff, right? Especially because she's someone who achieved great fame by, you know, kind of doing the reverse of a lot of the um, women in this book, you know, she was born and raised in America, you know, Pasadena born. And then she traveled abroad, was in like what's today Sri Lanka, et cetera. And then she went to France and she had her, you know, culinary awakening there, et cetera. And then she came back here and just changed the way America eats and cooks and everything. And so her story is kind of well-worn territory, let's say. Yet there are kind of aspects of her legacy that might deserve a bit more sustained consideration, at least from my view, because I don't know, like I said earlier, I never intended to come to food writing, but even I, as a total idiot about food, you know, I'd always known who Julia Child was growing up, you know, and then kind of her legend, at least for my generation, I'm 29 now, you know, it was cemented in the Nora Ephron movie, Julie and Julia, starring America's greatest actress, Meryl Streep. You know, it was all very kind of on the nose, like she's great, you know? And I don't question that in my little interlude is what we call it in the book, you know? But basically what I wanted readers to understand is that, yes, you know, she did become a star and, you know, an icon culturally for, you know, many valid reasons. She was enormously talented. You know, she had just so much charisma. You know, there's so much there. She had many, many gifts, but she was also a white American woman. And maybe her path to acceptance within the establishment, although she really did represent the establishment, she was kind of one of the gatekeepers. You know, it, it was not necessarily as rocky for her as it was for other women, even other white women, like uh, Madeline Kamen, who is the subject of the chapter that follows immediately after. You know, she was someone who kind of made a name for herself through her criticisms of people like Julia Child, in spite of the fact that Madeline herself was just so, so talented and had such a fresh way of thinking about food. And it was so principled and everything like that. You know, she dared to speak out against uh, people like Julia Child. So, you know, part of why I wanted to write about Julia in this book was to kind of urge readers to reframe their understanding of this American icon, because, you know, it's so easy to look at Julia Child's story and just be like, oh, wow, it's so unusual that, you know, someone like her became, you know, so huge because she was extremely tall and she had that. <laughs> <laughs> she was a dork. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, you know, she, and that is so central to her appeal and she's incredible and I have so much affection for her yet, you know. There are other kind of just, you know, privileges that she held from, um, you know, 
very basic systemic standpoint that allowed her to kind of rise to fame in that way. So that was part of it. And part of it too is the fact that, you know, readers will see when they open up the book, you know, she really factored into the Madeline Kamen chapter in a very significant way. There's that. And then she also kind of hovers as a presence in other parts of the book too, you know, I mean, that Norma Shirley chapter that I just yapped on about a few minutes ago, you know, Julia Child pops up again because so many people in the American press, you know, they called Norma Shirley the Julia Child of Jamaica. I mean, Edna Lewis got some of that also. Julia Child of Southern cooking or Black cooking. Uh. I think we're simpatico here in terms of being, you know, really exhausted with that sort of rhetorical construction because it feels so flattening, you know. It does more to kind of muddy the waters than to really clarify anything, you know. And yet so many of these women I wrote about in my book, even Marcella Hazan, who's, you know, proudly stands on her own, uh, Julie Sani, uh, Norma Shirley, all these people were called Visually a child of their respective home countries. And I just found that such a lazy and pervasive descriptor that so many women have been tagged with throughout American history. And so that is another reason why I was like, okay, I gotta really just, you know, go for it in terms of Julia Child. But I do hope that people read this and aren't like, oh my God, he hates Julia Child or oh, he's trying to cancel Julia Child because that is not it at all. And you've read the book. So you know that, you know, I, I hope that my affection for and love for Julia Child comes through clearly in that interlude. But you never know with readers. No, I don't feel like you're canceling her at all. I started writing about food in 1980. And needless to say, Julia Child was a goddess at that point. And there was no criticism of her or James Beard would be brooked. I mean, it just wasn't done. And it was a different time. But Julia Child, as I came to know her and, and as things changed, as her disciples had their own disciples and, and people without disciples at all began cooking and began becoming known for their food, it was clear how limited Julia was about, not in her ability to cook, because God knows I'm not a person who can judge that, but in her ability to see other cuisines, she was really limited. She thought Italian food was a joke. And she said that. She said, well, they just put stuff in the oven and cook it. And then they take it out again. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And oven is really good. You've had an extremely prolific career for someone so young. And you focused a great deal on women in the food world. And your profiles have been visceral and warm and championing. How did that happen? How did you come to be, don't take this the wrong way, so interested in women? <laughs> totally. First of all, thank you for the kind words about my work because I am so often so down on my own writing. And those anxieties increase tenfold when you're, uh, you know, releasing your debut book. So thank you for that. How did I come to, you know, be so interested in the stories of women? So, you know, I guess I haven't stated this yet, but, you know, I am a queer person of color. And I explained this in the final version of the book. But, you know, as someone who is a queer identifying person, I've, I have a complicated relationship to gender and gender expression. And I have had that throughout my whole life. And I realize that when people look at me and, you know, see this, see my beard and everything like that, you know, they might not necessarily be able to detect any of that sort of conflict or turmoil, let's say, you know, but I think that because of my life and everything I've experienced as a queer person in this world who has, you know, that uh, relationship to gender and gender expression, I've always been attracted to telling the stories of women who, you know, I like to see parts of myself in, uh, in aspects of myself and the self I want to be in some ways, you know, and 
it took me many, many years to put words to that experience because I think that, you know, question that has kind of dogged me throughout my career, you know, as a food writer is like, well, why are you as a dude, you know, telling the stories of these women, you know? And I think it's absolutely a valid question to ask, you know, who gets to benefit materially from telling whose stories. I do wish, however, more people understood that, you know, I am queer and I have that relationship with gender. Like I said, I'm also a person of color. I haven't a queer guy named Mayuk who's brown does not necessarily have an easy time of it, you know, in America or in the food world. You know what I mean? I have experienced my fair share of racism, homophobia, and you name it in this industry, you know? So I think that that is another kind of aspect of why I am so attracted to uh, the stories of these women in particular, because I'm sure that some readers of my book will come to it being like, oh, you know, I really want to know the story of how like America became this country where you can get, you know, tacos on one block, sock paneer on the next, you know, that kind of thing. And like bubbles on the other one, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> you do a great dude imitation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> But like, I really want to complicate that, you know, and I want to show readers that there's so much struggle embedded in that sort of, you know, creation of the quote unquote melting pot and everything like that. And that's why I focused on these stories in particular. Do you cook or not? I mean, I cook more now because, you know, I live alone and pandemic and everything like that. But, you know, I can't say I love it. <laughs> you know, it's definitely a lot of mental work for me, you know, to kind of be like, oh, okay, you know, I got cook, you know. <laughs> so when I do uh, kind of uh, take on these projects, I make sure that, you know, that a meal will last me, you know, a few days and everything like that. Spare me the labor of having to cook every night. What'd you eat last night? <laughs> I was fearing you would ask this question. So I I had a pizza that I uh, put in the in the microwave, the uh, oven. It was a margarita pizza, pepperoni, oregano, you know, nothing too crazy. But, you know, before that, you know, so I have this column at the New Yorker or whatever. And it's like uh, basically excerpts of my book, but paired with recipes. And my book itself does not have any recipes. Um, and so uh, late last week, I had cooked a recipe by Norma Shirley, who we were just talking about. It was a fricasseed chicken. And so that lasted me a few days. Well, that sounds great, though. It was fantastic. It was really, really good. I'm excited for more readers to make it themselves. But yeah, I mean, I was just this like, you know, disaster in the kitchen, you know, <laughs> like, you know, all these like marks all over me and everything like that. I cut myself, all that fun stuff. I remember those days. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'll ever get over that kind of thing. But anyway. I think we're good. Just remind us again when the book is out. Yeah, it's uh, November 2nd, so that is the day. Okay, and it's called Tastemakers. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more food in just a minute. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show yeah. is 
absolutely yeah. incredible. Or anime. Yeah. And under this sure. mask is another mask. <laughs> <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Well, my next guest today is, as you know, Yotam Odalengi, who you probably know by his great cookbooks, Plenty or Jerusalem, perhaps, Odalengi. Simple. There are several. They're all beautiful. Everyone I know has at least one of them, and you should. They're wonderful cookbooks. I wrote about him for the Times in 2011. We've become friendly since then. I was as excited about his cooking then as I am now. We had a blast cooking together, and his new book, Odalengi Test Kitchen, super, super interesting and a bit of a departure. We'll discuss that. His work to shepherd complex and wonderful Middle Eastern flavors to kitchens around the world can't be dismissed. He got people who'd never cooked before cooking with spices that they'd never heard of, and it's all become commonplace. So here's my interview with you, Tim. Good morning. Great to see you. Afternoon for you, I guess. Uh, good afternoon. It's good to, to talk to you, Mark. So Shelf Love is your new book, and in it you collaborated with your test kitchen folks. And you write at some point that the team realized that any recipe, any food, any dish could be made unequivocally 
Odalengi, as long as you had the right know-how, the right willingness to work with what you have, and so on. So that's an awesome realization. And I wonder if you can just say what makes something Odalengi. Yeah, that's something I need to always think for you know a minute or two before I answer, because it's not one or two things. I think it's a whole lot of things. I think Ottolenghi is, I think it's, there is always a, it's an element of surprise when you eat something with something that you didn't expect to be working in such a particular way. It's quite sunny. Uh, there's kind of there's a sunny and happy experience when you sit down and eat the food. It's vegetable heavy. It's not complicated to make, but there's a certain degree of complexity. It's not a smooth sailing experience. You know, there's bumps along the way and along the ride. And, and I like that. I think that makes the experience more interesting. So you would meet, you know, texturally or in terms of flavor, things along the way that make it a bit more interesting. It's food, I think, that has its roots in the Middle East, but really draws inspiration from that, you know, in Asia and North Africa and some parts of the world, there is a, the opposite of minimalism, I guess, is maximalism. So there is more ingredients involved to create a more intense experience, like the opposite would be something maybe Italian or Northern Italian or Japanese, where there is a kind of set of very few ingredients that are very good that do the job. This is kind of the opposite. You put quite a lot of things into the mix and um, if it works, it works really well. So it, it creates that kind of intensity of flavors and textures and something quite happy and multi-layered, I would say. Again, this is a sort of a test kitchen collaboration. I'm wondering how your test kitchen works. Is it super collaborative or do people work on different things at a given moment? It's really interesting. So we have this test kitchen, my test kitchen has become something that has evolved over time. And when I started publishing cookbooks and recipes, I was working on my own at home, you know, testing recipes. And the book Plenty, which is my first book that was published in North America, was something that I just, you know, I did at home. And I felt that experience as someone who's always been, you know, in restaurant kitchens and just generally or, or our, our cafes or delis, I just felt that feeling quite insular and I felt that I'm not getting the feedback that I need to get when I cook. I think I felt a bit lonely. And then the idea came up, my main business partner, Noam Barr, said, why don't you get a, a test kitchen? Don't work from home because, you know, now in the pandemic, we all know how complicated that is to work in the same place that you, you live in day in, day out. And why don't you open a dedicated space? And over time, people joined the test kitchen and people left. And the test kitchen became more about me and the team. It, it became about the team members, you know, people that came in and brought in their particular cultures and their histories of cooking, whether it's in restaurants or whether it's at home. And, and I've embraced that. I thought like that makes my food or our food now much more interesting because it, it really rests on all those people. So this one, the OTK cookbook, really celebrates that place. So my co-author is Noor Murad, and she's a... Um, a kind of a cross-cultural person, a bit like myself. She grew up in Bahrain, in the Gulf, as a son of a Bahrainian and an English person. And she spent time in America uh, learning how to cook and then ended up in London. So she has a lot of perspectives and very different perspectives and not, not one particular tradition that, you know, anchors her. And that openness and those kind of diverse food traditions really resonates in her food. Particularly, I love the fact that the food of Bahrain, which is where she grew up, is a, is a combination of 
Persian, Indian, and Arabic or Middle Eastern food. And it's really interesting. And so this book is very much focused on Noor and her journey in the Ottolenghi and under the Ottolenghi umbrella. And she's been working in the test kitchen for about three years and developing recipes. And so when we develop recipes, you know, back to your question, it's really every member, we're normally with two or three people, takes the recipe from start to finish. And that would be something that uh, either came in a conversation in the group or they've actually decided they wanted to cook. I, I don't control this, you know, it just happens. And I, I like it that way because really exciting things happen. Often we comment on each other's foods and, and kind of have a conversation, but basically it's one person takes their dish from start to finish and it has their fingerprint, thumbprints on it. You know, that's that's a dish that they cooked. And this became really very, took a special quality when last year when we went into lockdown and we couldn't cook from one space. So people cooked from different spaces. And rather than cook for the purpose of cooking for um, publications, you know, whether it's, you know, The Guardian, The New York Times, The Cookbook, etc., it was cooking for ourselves or our families, wherever we were isolating, because we just had to double up. You know, we didn't have the luxury of cooking just for experimental purposes. And that became really interesting. And that was the place where this book Shelf Love came out. And Shelf Love stands for your kitchen shelves, kitchen cupboards, pantry, your fridge, your freezer, your veg box. Because we found ourselves in a position we were cooking for ourselves and our families with ingredients that we had at home most because it was very hard for everyone to go shopping. So, you know, the Ottolenghi way of going out to seek out the very exotic ingredients just to make a particular dish, we had to ditch that, <laughs> throw it to one side and embrace our shelves, you know, our cupboards. And that's how this book came about. So Nora went to Bahrain and she was cooking for her family there. A couple of other people were living on their own, cooking for themselves. I was in Ireland mostly with my husband, Carl, and our kids, and I cooked a lot of children's food. And uh, those became the core of the recipes in this particular book. But I just wanted to say one thing. This is not a pandemic book. This is a book that just celebrates our, you know, our storage spaces in our kitchen, our kitchen logistics and how you can create really gorgeous meals with a tin of chickpeas or a can of chickpeas or a bag of frozen peas or, a, you know, a bag of polenta that has been neglected for a year or two. You know, those things that are, are really, you know, we've learned to appreciate during the, the first lockdown. Nor, who you mentioned, works in this test kitchen and is largely responsible for this, wrote an ode to hummus that people went crazy over. And when I visited you in Northwest London 10 years ago or whatever it was, it's funny because we talked about hummus and you talked about philosophy of hummus, whether it should be sieved or not. And I remember that conversation vividly. So maybe let's have it again. What is the real hummus? What should people know if they want to make the real hummus? So I have to say that I think I've really mellowed over the years since our first meeting, you know, a decade ago. And I'm an older person and a much more pragmatic person. And I think, you know, the, the American cover of this book has two plates with hummus on them, which is we often do in the test kitchen, you know, try to kind of compare one option with another, you know, and, and see what's the best way with it, with certain ingredients or what's the best way to get the most successful, delicious dish. And the funny thing is like with, with hummus, I used to be like a purist because I grew up in Jerusalem 
as you know, and you know, there was a there was very strong opinions on the subject, you know, what makes a good hummus, you know, who makes the best hummus and what goes into it and what's the technique, etc. And and Sammy, Tamimi and I in the book Jerusalem were we were giving this kind of very pure technique to as to how to make hummus. But these days I'm much more easygoing about this thing. I'm thinking so we we kind of compare, you know, ready cooked chickpeas from a good jar to Cook chickpeas that you cook yourself, you know, after leaving to soak for overnight. And the, the result is that, yes, it's better to cook your own chickpeas and, you know, soak them and cook them. But what you get from a, good, a jar of good chickpeas is also pretty good. And we're happy to take both. So essentially, and this is really very crucial to me at this, for this particular book, we just don't have the luxury always to get exactly what we want. And one of the messages that comes through the recipes of this book is that it's fine. You know, you could use your jarred chickpeas or your canned chickpeas, and you, but if you, can, if you have dried chickpeas, even better. It's not a, a matter of life and death. And I think, <laughs> I think the pandemic has taught us that there are things that are a matter of life and death, but food, you know, what you choose to cook is not. It's much, it should be much more about how much joy you get out of it, you know, and how delicious you can make it with what you've got. And I I truly think that there's some really delicious, wonderful recipes here uh, that are, feel like a feast, but they use very humble ingredients. You know, for me, the best thing is that, and I have one of those in almost every book that I publish, is a really wonderful pilaf, you know, a rice, a dish which is focused on rice, cooks in the oven often, you know, like these rice that are baked, and with a lot of things going on, aromatics, it could be a confit garlic or it could be confit garlic, tomatoes and beets, it could be many things. You put the rice in, you let it sit for half an hour and have an when it comes out, all the steams that come out is, is incredible because it tells the story of what's inside, you know, if it's curry leaves or coriander or cinnamon or lemon skin, whatever it is. And it's a, it's a delicious meal. You really don't need anything else. You know, you can make a yogurt sauce or whatever, but it's, it's all there. And Rice is such a humble ingredient. And yeah, so so I think that's what I love so much about this book and also what I learned from the pandemic. Let's talk about vegetables for a second. You have a sort of no vegetable left behind policy, which I subscribe to as well. What do you think is the most challenging vegetable you've dealt with recently and what have you done with it? The most difficult recipes to deal with, I think, are turnips and what we call swede. I think you call it rutabaga. Those are difficult vegetables in the sense that they are quite, especially rutabaga has got a high water content and there's a bitterness to them that you want to work with. So, you know, I think uh, techniques like confiting, you know, cooking in butter or in oil for a long time would always help. I think it always helps to balance that out with a bit of acidity or sweetness, sugar, you know, those things. But I, I love these challenges. You know, in my previous book, Flavor, there's a recipe for rutabaga that is served with a kind of a curry, fenugreek-y, curry leafy paste, and then with a, served with creme fraiche. And it's absolutely delicious. I couldn't replace the rutabaga with any other vegetable there because of that bitterness is really, really good with those spices. So, yeah, I wouldn't say that it's easy to work with a turnip as it is with the uh, tomato. You know, tomatoes are just wonderful on their own when they're good. And I couldn't say that's true about a turnip. But there's a lot you can do. 
You mentioned tomatoes, and I know you're into this thing of grading tomatoes, which I think is an interesting and awesome concept. Can you just talk about that for a second, what you do with that? Yeah, the funny thing with grading tomatoes, but so Noor grew up in the Middle East and I grew up in the Middle East, and we both took it for granted, you know, because that's what you do. You know, often if you want to get like tomato juice, you know, like uh, for, you know, drizzling over a meze or a garlic bread or, you know, those kind of things, you take a whole tomato in your hand and you take, course, a box grater and you go for the coarsest setting and you just start grating it. And at first it doesn't feel natural, but what you happen that you end up with essentially most of the skin in your hand and all of the pulp in there as a, as a kind of juice. And it's the easiest thing in the world in order to get rid of most of the skin. I mean, you still have bits of skins that are grated in, but the majority of it you're left with. And it's, you see old ladies, you know, it's such an old technique, you know, in, in the markets doing that or, in, or in, in their own kitchens. And it's extremely common, but you need to see it to believe it, you know, because tomatoes are not easily associated with grating. You know, you think you need something harder, but it's just a technique of getting rid of the skin. When we talked in 2011, when I visited you, you said, or at least I wrote that you said, so I guess it's true, that you lack the bossiness of most chefs. I wonder if that's changed, that you've become more bossy or, or even less bossy as time has gone on. I'm less bossy. I've never, I'm not a bossy type. So maybe I was jealous of chefs that kind of channeled that inner part of, you know, aspect of them. Um, there's lots of styles, you know, management styles. And my management style is very mellow. And I get my way in a kind of roundabout way. I, I'm not a very direct kind of person. I am soft. But I think people that work with me, and, and maybe they, they need to say that, but I would imagine that they would say that they know what I need, what I want, but it never, it's never confrontational. And it's just comes more natural to me to express my desires, needs, wishes like that. What I really don't like is the, those kind of aggressive behaviors. I've never tolerated it in any of my kitchens by head chefs, you know, and I know now there's less of it and there, we are more, we are talking about these things more and accepting them less, but I've, I've never really thought that this is something that I, I would accept or tolerate in my kitchens. And I, I think there isn't much, much of it in our kitchen. Of course, it's a stressful environment and you get stressful moment, but not for the sake of it. You and I share a sort of preference for vegetables, but an unwillingness to forego meat and fish. I wonder if you've changed any way in that regard in the last 10 years, whether you're sort of using the same amount of animal products, less, more, how you're feeling about it. Uh, so I do, I think generally speaking, I've always not been using a lot of animal products. So proportionally, you know, it's not a black or white and I like that it's not a black or white thing. So in, a, in our rest, in my restaurants, we serve the majority of the dishes have always been vegetables. You know, that when you start reading the menu, first it's the vegetables and not necessarily vegetarian dishes, but vegetable focused dishes. And then come meat and fish lower down. And I have always felt that is the best way to work with vegetables. It works for me because this is the way I eat. So in, at home, we eat a lot of vegetables and we eat more vegetables probably than meat. And, and you know, having a steak or having something which is like unadulterated piece of meat is a real treat. You know, we would have it once every few months and it's, it's an occasion. I've always felt, and, I, and this is kind of the same, it hasn't changed dramatically, that 
We really, really need to eat more vegetables as a society, and um, you don't need to be a very original thinker to recognize that. We all know that. But the best way to get people to do that is not tell them what to do, but to offer them a platter of of delicious thing and they would and to choose from that is vegetable focused rather than be negative and say this you shouldn't be eating this and that be positive and you can't be eating all those wonderful things and that has worked for me because i know that many people that have taken to my cooking and cooked for my books have said you know we have experienced thing with plant-based ingredients that we've never thought were possible before and that for me is the biggest compliment because that means that people have chosen not to go cold turkey or some people do but many haven't but still completely shifted the way they eat and have way more vegetables than meat and fish and and i think that's that's how we should approach it so i stick behind that do you get a lot of pushback from vegans or not so much I think less than I did. And, you know, I, I do what I do. And, and yeah, people, some people say, why haven't you become completely vegan? And I am full of admiration. And I'm really happy that veganism has taken such a, such a dominant part of our culture. And people eat better for that. And I think it's, it's a great thing. But I, I really think that we really need to respect that people take their own personal journeys when it comes to what they eat. As I said, the best way to coax or encourage people to take the, the vegetable route rather than the meat route is, is not to tell them you must go vegan. You know, that is just going to put off so many people that are, will carry on eating, you know, huge amounts of meat and fish and, and dairy. And we really want to have less of that. Yeah, I think that the change is coming, but it's not an abrupt change and it's going to take a while. So what did you have for dinner last night? Last night, oh, actually, it's a good question because last night I made a dish for the children. Carl, my husband and I, shared the cooking at the time. Normally he cooks at home more than I do. But the one thing that they really love, and it's a very simple dish, is like a casserole or a dish made of, of chicken and pasta that are cooked together, dried pasta. So and you sear some chicken and you, you then you cook tomatoes, onions. And so you cook down onions and carrots and celery or whatever you've got with quite a lot of oil. And then you put your chicken back and dried pasta and enough water just to cook the pasta. And you let it cook for a little while on your stovetop. And, and because it's got quite a lot of olive oil and this, the pasta just absorbs the liquid, it starts to get it like a crust around the, the bottom and the sides. And, and so it's like crispy pasta with chicken made in one pot. Sounds amazing. And sounds like kids would go crazy for that. So kids go crazy for that. And yesterday I just made that with orzo instead of spaghetti. But, you know, you can obviously choose whatever you want to do. And yeah, they were very happy. Today was their first day back in school. So they were exhausted yesterday after a whole day outside. And they ate that and everybody was pretty happy. You know, that sounds like the kind of dish you could use your, I have a jar of leftover bits of pasta and there's really only one dish I ever make with that jar and it's pasta with potatoes, a sort of Neapolitan tomato sauce, slow cooked, lots of potatoes, lots of chilies, garlic, and you overcook the pasta. But this actually sounds like you could use leftover bits and... Yeah, it's, it's hard to get wrong. I mean, in this book, I just made one other flourish that I didn't do yesterday. I... I put cheese and breadcrumbs on top at the end and stick it in the oven just to get a bit of a crust. Yesterday, I didn't even bother, but they were equally happy. <laughs> it was nice chatting with you and good to see you. And I hope we can catch up in person at some point. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye.
Our second recipe today, those of you who have followed my writing for a number of years know that I am a huge fan of savory porridge, especially savory oatmeal. So I can't resist. So as I said, there's so many good recipes in Odalengi Test Kitchen. I can't resist this savory oat porridge with ginger garlic crumbs because it's the kind of thing people don't make and should. So here we go. It is not that simple a recipe. Bear with me. I'm going to go fast. Trim and have lengthwise about 12 scallions and toss them in a bowl with a tablespoon of olive oil and some salt and pepper. Then place a large nonstick saute pan on a high heat and when it's hot, cook half of those scallions for three minutes, turning them a couple times until they're softened and a little bit charred. Transfer them to a plate and then do the same to the remaining half and then add them to the same plate. Let the pan cool a little bit, then wipe it out, put it on medium heat with two tablespoons of olive oil. And once that's hot, add three ounces of fresh ginger, which is a, a good sized piece, peeled and finely grated, and 12 cloves of garlic. That's a, about a head or maybe two minced. So a lot of ginger and garlic. Cook that in those two tablespoons of oil, again over medium heat, and cook for about 15 minutes, stirring occasionally until the mixture is golden and crisp. Transfer two-thirds of this mixture to a small bowl, but leave the rest in the pan. In the meantime, or whenever you like, boil four eggs for six minutes. They'll be soft-boiled, or uf mole, I would call them. You could do them longer if you like. Nine minutes was good if you like jammy, hard-boiled, so-called hard-boiled eggs. Drain and peel and set those aside. To the pan where you left some of the ginger-garlic mixture, add one and three-quarters cup of rolled oats, a quart, that's four cups of water, a teaspoon of salt, and a grinding of pepper. Bring that to a simmer over medium-high heat and cook for about four minutes, stirring now and then until you have a loose porridge. If it's not loose, add a little more water. Take a quarter cup, that's half a stick of butter, and chip straight from the fridge and cut it into small cubes. In a small saucepan, put two tablespoons of soy sauce and a big pinch of pepper. Bring that to a simmer on medium-high heat, and then turn the heat down to low and whisk in the butter cubes a couple at a time, waiting until they're melted before adding more. Do this until you have a homogenized mixture, and don't let this boil at all as it will separate. You're looking for a very creamy sauce here. Now, divide the porridge among four bowls and top each bowl with some of the soy butter and some of the scallions. Cut the eggs in half, sprinkle them with salt and pepper, and place one on top of each of the mounds of oatmeal. Then finish with the reserved ginger garlic crumbs and a sprinkling of red chili flakes. Serve warm. Oh, does that sound great? Okay, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mayuk Sen and to Yotam Odalengi. What a pair, right? Follow Mayuk on Instagram, at mayuk.sen. That's at M-A-Y-U-K-H dot S-E-N. And on Twitter, at Senator Mayuk, S-E-N-A-T-O-R-M-A-Y-U-K-H. You can follow Yotam on Instagram and Twitter, at Odalengi, and on Facebook, at Odalengi UK. Mayuk's book, Tastemakers, and Yotam's newest book, Odalengi Test Kitchen, are at now. Thanks to Kate Bittman and Ben Mathis for producing and engineering the show. And thank you all for listening. See you next week. <laughs>